0: We individualize training in the pool, so why not individualize your nutrition? Erica Biney of Binney Wellness Building will help you and your swimmers get exactly what each athlete needs through genetic testing and personalized nutrition plans. So stop guessing what you should and shouldn't be putting into your body. Athletes within a few weeks have noticed they're recovering faster because they're fueling their body with what they need and staying away from what their body hates. Erica understands swimming. She gets it. She's worked with over 20 Olympians, including the fastest man in the world, Caleb Dressel. Group discounts are available. So go to Biney Wellness Building and get in touch with Erica today. That's Biney, B-E-I-N-E, wellnessbuilding.net. Former swimmers looking for a way to give back to the sport in New York City? Reach out to Imagine Swimming. Since 2002, they've been the premier Learn to Swim school with international and American staff, including Olympic champions Anthony Irvin and Eric Vent. Imagine Swimming offers infant to adult classes, plus competitive team options, water polo, and an artistic swimming club coached by an Olympic silver medalist. With flagship locations across Manhattan and Brooklyn, Imagine is always looking for the next generation of swimmers to pass on their knowledge and passion for swimming. All right, this one's an honor. Larson Jensen, how you doing, man?
1: Honor's all mine. Good to see you. It's been a while.
0: It has been a while. Um, we were on opposing teams many years ago, I guess. Uh, always always on the bus together. I never really got to compete against you, but I got to watch you plenty from the side, which was good. It was the best place to be when <laughs> when you were competing on the side. So but um, I can say you know, the, I guess,
1: same thing about you and your events. Like I don't, yeah. I, I don't envy that one whatsoever. But I think that the mile, stereotypically, people don't envy in most cases, and it takes somebody to, a couple screw loose, uh, screws yeah. loose to go do it. Uh, yeah. Myself and you know Grant and all the guys that came before us that really set the stage. So uh, yeah, well yeah, you had, you had
0: a had an incredible career just watching you go and uh, and compete uh, tough, and I want to get into some of that as well. But I'm looking at your. I'm looking at your linkedin bio here and i'm like man this guy has led uh, i i was i counted three lives and then i was like no no it's four you know since you since you left college and then you just mentioned you got kids so it's like you've got you got five lives that you've led since you left high school basically you're you're a graduate of uh, usc and stanford you went to you went to stanford business uh school as a, as a graduate and then you go you know obviously your olympic run that you went on you know yeah uh, And then you go into the seals and you're in your Navy seal for many years. And now you're a a founder of a VC firm. So it's like you've you've led these incredible lives in such a short period of time, man. I
1: I think that I have. And it's crazy to think about, um, you know, you blink and my wife and I just had our 10 year wedding anniversary this past year. We have three kids, seven, Mm -hmm. five and one. Um, You know, we've had a number of careers that we've gone through. Uh, A lot of you know, ranging from the military and the SEAL team, stuff in the Bay Area to getting in tech and venture capital and investing in Mm -hmm. startups. It's been a wild ride. And and I think in hindsight, if I was to uh, not know about the journey, uh, uh, empathetically, from my perspective, Mm -hmm. I would think that all of this was pre-planned and this was Mm -hmm. part of the part of the journey or part of the story. But uh, as with anything in life, I think there's so much serendipity, so many mentors, so many people that have taken a chance on me uh, and given me the opportunity to work hard and make mistakes um, and to be there to pick me up where I've made those mistakes and and move into these new careers. But you're right. It's been a wild journey. And I never in a million years would have thought we are where we are now uh, when I was swimming following the black line like we used to Mm do day in and day out. Um, So it's definitely fun
0: how did um let's start with the swimming then how did how did the swimming come about how did that start
1: i think very similar to most uh uh, of the guys we swam with and most of the people are out there now it starts in your backyard pool or your community pool Mm -hmm. it starts with a love for the water and needing to perpetually be in it for whatever reason Mm. maybe it's the chlorine, maybe it's the sensation of weightlessness and being there, but people get addicted to it and love being in the water. And I, I think that, you know, aquatic disposition is something that hit me at a young age. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, my young adolescence that I really developed the passion for going back and forth. Uh, I was one of those kids in my formative years of, you know, summer league swimming that wanted to be the sprinter, um, you know, I think at the time it's when you have Gary Hall Jr. who's up there wearing his, uh, you know, his Rocky uh, robe and, and mm. shorts and stuff like that. That's the the, the cool stuff, right? Um, but I but I quickly realized that I was more of a slow twitch guy uh, and had a little bit of persistence and grit in me, and uh, all of those things you know helped my coaches over the years. Um, you know, helped me gravitate towards the distance uh, distance swimming events. And so, for me, I, as you, as you know, definitely specialized in different distance freestyle uh, 400, 1500 or in yards, 500, 1650. And uh, that was my bread and butter for for a mm. while. And um, I think there's a certain degree of passion and, uh, I don't know, history that's in those events that's really unique. I mean, all these events have a lot of you know history and passion, but yeah. um, I, I think for me, I really uh, was drawn towards those distance events. Never so much in the open water stuff. One of my teammates, Maluli went out there and won all those mm-hmm. gold medals and stuff like that. But open water was, was uh, I think, a little bit before my time.
0: Then we got pulled in that direction. What was After the first? My um today, yeah. yeah. What was the first team you 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 made? You qualified for for the U.S.
1: Uh, it was Panpax in 2002 in Japan. Mm-hmm. That was my okay. first U.S. team.
0: Okay, that. That was the one where where you're part of my Grant Hackett story. Have you ever heard that story before? Uh, I'm nervous to hear it, but excited at the same time. <laughs> it was it was that it was that me 2002. So so Grant was on a run. You know, Grant Grant was obviously the guy at yeah. the time, and he was he was winning a lot and doing great things. World championships the year before broke the world record yeah. and and stuff like that. So we go to I believe we, we went to the Commonwealth Games before the the Panpacs, and and we knew that after Panpac after Commonwealths we were coming to face the US you know so it's like we have this incredible you know o- over the other side of the globe competition and then we come come over to to Japan to face the the mighty US you know and by the time Grant had gone through his full run of events and got to the 1500 I mean, he was completely exhausted this one day. And and I was trying to think to myself, like, what can I say to Grant that's going to really get him going here? Because, like, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I'd, I'd never seen Grant down and kind of um, feeling low and not really motivated. Grant was always motivated. So, like, when you come to this end of this run of this massive competition schedule over the course of a month and traveling the world, he was, you know, deservedly so exhausted. So... I remember coming off the bus, and and I remember sitting with you or near you on the bus, and I was thinking to myself, I'm gonna use him as 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 someone to get to Grant. So I go over to Grant on the massage table, and I said, you know, uh, how you feeling, buddy? He's like, oh, I'm I'm dead, I'm I'm done, like I'm toast. I've I got nothing left, you know. I'm like, ah oh, man, that, that's a shame because I was just I was sitting on the bus with the Americans and. I was listening to Larson Jensen, Eric Vent, and they were they were talking about how they're finally going to kick your ass, you know, like this <laughs> We probably were
1: saying that, you know, we probably were. We were we were uh, we're guilty of a lot of things, and having a, a small mouth wasn't one of them. Uh, no, no, Ryan, you were very nice, and, very
0: polite. You weren't and saying and anything I... like that, but uh, yeah, it was just a fun one. So Grant went out and, and ripped ripped a fifteen hundred. He, he, he ripped, man.
1: He ripped as he always did. Um, yeah, tremendous. You know, guy for the sport I mean yeah know, amazing amazing guy
0: yeah what's it like when you got a competitor like that um in, in the pool at least you know and and you're you're at the top of your game you're, you're going into yeah. you go into Athens and and i imagine you felt pretty good about that too like you, you're in a pretty good position there and then and and you got to race a guy like Rand Hacker what's that like
1: I'd be curious to hear what he would say about it too. Not so much as it relates to me, but you know, I think it probably different ends uh, of the spectrum in terms of the competition, because I don't think I was ever the favorite of the top dog or what have you. I always had a stocking horse. I always had like this luminary, this legend in distance swimming and Grant Hackett chase after who set the standard, the world record holder, like just, you know, obviously, you know, you guys have a rich history of this in Australia. And so um, I think from my perspective, it was, you know he had a bullseye on his back and i was going for him and i wanted to beat him and i thought that i could uh i had to drop a ton of time in order to do it um but that was really a huge motivation for me throughout the season was you know having that target on the back of grants grants back and, and thinking that i could pull it off um and i got close in 04 you know with, mm-hmm. with about 100 to go we were, we were even um but you know he's more experienced stronger bigger all these things and had a lot you know had the ability to pull through and and touch the wall first and beat me by you know i think a second and a half or something like that which um seems further apart than than it was with 100 to go there and i look back on that experience and you know at the time obviously you know, it's funny. I was talking with a friend of mine today and he's like, you know, Larson, you've gotten second, third, fourth and fifth in the Olympics. And I, I for whatever reason, never really realized that. Um, and so I'm pretty good at like that middle uh, pack of the finals at the Olympics. But I'm missing sort of like the eighth and whatever seventh and I'm missing mm. the gold. Um, uh, but I, I, like, I look back on that race and think that it's, you know, speaking of you know Gary Hall and Rocky and all that stuff that, you know, I was the newcomer. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, I looked at myself as sort of like the Rocky and he's sort of the Apollo Creed and mm. I didn't beat him, but I went the distance with him. And I think, uh, yeah. I think I made him work for it. And, uh, know, I certainly did too. So that was, that was an amazing race and, and a great time. And, um, obviously to do it in the birthplace of the modern Olympic games made it even more special.
0: Yeah. And then, you, you know, you obviously have a run for, for the next four years and you go, go to the next, next Olympics and you're successful there as well. Um, in that time, are you starting to think beyond swimming at that point in time? Or was it was it kind of like, did you need to kind of stop and then and then kind of collect yourself after oh I
1: I was. And I'd be curious to hear your perspective on this, especially with the other guests you have on and you know, the people you've coached over time. Mm. I think that that for better or worse, there's this post-Olympic reset and people sort of struggle with figuring right. out, do you want to recommit for four more years? And although there's tremendous events, whether it be NCAA's, national championships, other international meets, in mm. the sport of swimming, nothing holds a stick to the Olympics. Right. You could have a unblemished career and not do well at the Olympics, and I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it doesn't—it mm-hmm. doesn't matter as much. Yep. And so I think that's something that people really struggle with: is recommitting, getting back on the horse, and riding as hard as you can for four more years um, with all the ups and downs and you know the breakdowns and tapers yeah swimming's a hard sport i are, i think it's arguably the uh, the hardest uh sport out there mentally for people um and here's why it's one of the few sports where you are alone with your thoughts and nothing else mm-hmm. with no other stimulation you're not mm-hmm. seeing a change of scenery right. you're not really talking to people unless you're on the wall and you can get a few words out in between a sip of water or Gatorade but you're really alone with the pain and alone with the focus and alone with your thoughts, which yeah. can be a dangerous thing, especially yeah. as, as you're working hard. Um, and so I, I think for me, to your point, it was about midway through that where, you know, about two years away from the 08 Olympics. And I started to have a little bit of that crisis of identity of like, do mm-hmm. I you know, not only want to go to 08? I knew I wanted to give it a shot there, but do I don't want to go a- again and go to go to 12. Right. And maybe got in my own head a little bit about what I wanted to do, and I, you know I, I think that I you know especially these days guys are swimming later like there's more you know influencer money in the sport there's all these things that people can afford to keep it going a little bit later, um, but I wanted to do something different I wanted to test myself in a new way. I've always enjoyed that about sports and about swimming is you have the opportunity to really see what you're made of. And you at the end of the day, don't have anybody to blame, but yourself, like mm. you can make excuses. You can say the dynamic wasn't right. The water temperature was off or the pool hours weren't great, but at the end of the day, it's really on you. Um, and so I, I loved that spirit of testing yourself. And I wanted to test myself again. And I wanted to test myself uh, in a situation where the stakes are high and so that drew me to the special operations community in, in the United States, and more specifically the SEAL teams. Um, and I think I got that in droves. It was just an amazing experience, uh, was certainly tested, um, you know, to a level that was on par or greater than you know, competing in the Olympics. And um, I got to do so with guys that I counted on and guys that counted on me. Um, probably similar in a different way, you know, being on a relay, right? Everyone counts yeah. on each other uh, to, to, you know, not get a false start and give it their best effort and to, um, do something special. And I I think in the seal teams, you have that day in and day out. Um, and I think that's something I was really craving. Um, and I I think I got,
0: what was your, um, first interaction with the possibility of, of the seal teams, right? You're, you're an Olympic athlete, you're training the Olympics, but then I just remember that uh, you know, within a very short amount of time, I'm back on the pool deck at the World Championships and, and people are saying, Oh, Larson Jensen's a Navy SEAL. And I'm like, what? No, he's he's an Olympic swimmer." And all of a sudden it was just like bam. So I was like, wow, yeah. that's impressive. So what what was that?
1: As you get older, everything seems like a time warp, doesn't it? Uh this is like <laughs> You know, th- this year it's 20 years from our 04 games. Like, wow, where did yeah. time? Where did time go? Cool. Uh, I think I've got the gray hairs to prove it at this point. <laughs> um, but I, I think for me, um, it was something I was considering for a while, mm. and I I remember having a decision point where um, it was you know, basically trifold continue swimming, which is a great option. I had great coaches, swam for Coach Bill Rose, swam for Coach Mark Schubert, swam for Coach Dave Salo, all with mm. different styles and really useful ones to help develop me, not only as an athlete, but as a man, which I think is really important. Um, go you know, into a more traditional job, which arguably maybe you know, what I'm doing in finance now, I would characterize back then in my level of thinking in terms of it being more traditional, um, or do something that you probably have to do when you're young, uh, swimming or the military is something that you, the, the advantages of youth are important. Um, and so I, I sort of felt like if I, if I didn't give it a shot, I would likely look back on that and regret not, uh giving it, uh, my all and big in my early twenties, I felt I was in the prime physical condition to, mm. uh, go out there and, and give it my best um, and have some decent recovery to boot. And we had some guys in our SEAL training class that, you know, we called grandpa that were 30 years old. And, <laughs> uh, and like at the, at the time we thought that was old. Uh, but you know, it does make a difference, right? That, that decade makes a difference.
0: Yeah. Well, I, my, my, uh, business partner here on the podcast and my, and my producer Nate, he uh, lives in Virginia beach and he's just, yeah. and he coaches these guys. Like he, he does some some uh, swim swim coaching for the for the operations guys. And he, he's like, all right, Brett. You, you He was so excited when I was going to you know do this podcast with you. He's like, you got to ask him about Buds. I want to know everything about Buds. I just want to know, like, how hard is it? What's the difficulty? How do you get through it? Does, yeah. does swimming set you up for it? Like, I don't know. So this whole Buds thing, man, you know, obviously in the past few years, more and more people are talking about it. And it's come to the come to the lot of like, you know, the the things you have to go through to to get there. But like, what was the experience like for you? It's a crucible moment, uh, literally and figuratively.
1: It it is a crucible. It is a selection process. And they make it intentionally extremely arduous. Um, And I I look back, I remember on Thursday of Hell Week, and I guess just for some context for the listeners on what Bud's is to, Mm. to set the table a little bit. So BUDS is basic underwater demolition SEAL training. So it's the formative training that anybody who's you know, enlisted in the military or who is an officer in the military needs to go through before you can join a Navy SEAL team. Right. Um, so it's, it's about six months long. It's broken up into different training blocks. You know, first phase is what they call physical conditioning um, where they have hell week. Second phase is you know underwater scuba diving effectively um and you know, third phase is you know what they call land warfare where you get familiar with you know, weapons and tactics um and so first phase where the buds experience is is really what people hear about with hell week which is essentially five days and change of uh very little sleep i think in our class we got about an hour and a half nap on wednesday and an hour and a half nap on thursday Man. prior to going into that experience or really learning about it i, I never thought the human body was really capable of doing that but it's one of the things that really drove me to it. Similar to some of the workouts that us crazy distance swimmers would do, is <laughs> so you know we're like, hey, let's do something crazier than we've ever heard somebody else doing in terms of time, repeats, distance, etc., and ideally mm-hmm. a combination thereof. And so I was I was drawn to the challenge. Um, and you know I remember on, on Thursday night of Hell Week, um, for all intents and purposes, you've made it because I think the greatest amount of people who quit. Or don't make it through hell week. I think it's usually uh, around Tuesday timeframe, to a lesser mm. extent Wednesday, where you know it's almost a foregone conclusion you're going to make it if you make it to Thursday. And okay. Thursday night, you know, certainly because you only have one cycle of darkness, one night to get through before you're, you're done the next mm. next day. Um, and the night times are the worst because of the coldest and the bleakest. Um, but I remember Thursday, one of uh one of the buds instructors, you know, who I would say gave me a lot of extra attention. Uh, given my you know, formative uh, experience in swimming, said, mm-hmm. "All right, hey, like you, you know, sort of gone through hell week and you've been to the Olympics. Which one's harder?" And you know, at that time, I'm sleep deprived. I probably am not speaking very clearly or thinking very clearly. But uh, what I recall saying uh, was something to the effect of, "You know, training for the Olympics, it's just it's it's a four year or longer journey where you just need to be focused day in and day out and put in that mm-hmm. consistency." Uh, but I'd, I'd never, you know, up until that point, done something with the same intensity for a week long duration of time, a pure physical activity and uh, <laughs> bluntly harassment from the instructor staff uh, in terms of, you know, <laughs> seeing if you're capable of making it through uh, to being a part of the community and a part of the brotherhood. Um, so it was a great experience. Um, and as they say in the community, it's, you know, the best time you never want to have again. Um, so I look back on that probably with some of my fondest memories, still have some of my closest friends in the world or guys that I went through that experience with and subsequently mm-hmm. deployed with. Um, because I, I, you know, just like in swimming, I, I think you form the, the greatest bonds, <coughs> part of me, and relationships with people that you go through adversity with. Um, you know, it's, it's great to have friends and all that, you know, but if you really go through something challenging with them and you make it out the other end, you sort of know the, mm. you know, to your core, like you, you are um, totally vulnerable uh, for better or worse because you are operating in a sleep-deprived environment. When you know your true character comes out, and you get to see who's going to put team over self, and that's what
0: the community really screens for. That's wild, man. Yeah, I'm I'm completely useless without sleep. That's the thing. Is I have to get through the activity, but you. You deprive me of sleep and I'm just absolutely useless. So well, well, I wouldn't make it.
1: I am too these days. Uh, but it teaches <laughs> you. I mean, uh, with context, things, you know, I think with experience, you gain context. With context, you know more of what you're capable of and, you know, you become more worldly. I'd say the same thing with the national team trips we've been on or the meets you go to. You know, with that experience, you sort of know how to handle the pressure better, how to handle the recovery better, how to listen to your body better. And if needed, like just like in your Grant Hackett story, where he's been cranking multiple uh, events per, per meet, multiple meets in a row for a couple months, um, at some point, you know that you can get through that and still succeed and do so at an elite level. I think in a similar way, that analogy applies to SEAL training as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you probably had moments in, in your training and preparations for multiple Olympics where you you did something where you're like wow I didn't realize I could do that but now that I've done it I, I, I'm you know I've kind of figured that out so I'm sure at, at moments like that you may have referred back to training like that right like for the Olympics yeah. where you where you're probably going through something you don't think you get through and, and then you you remember back like oh yeah I, I can get through that huh?
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think that into you know, one of the comments you brought up earlier uh, to the question that you were going to ask is, um, you know, it does did swimming set me up for success mm, going right. into that career. And I'd say yeah. without a doubt it did. But I would say probably not in the way that most people suspect, um, although the SEAL teams are a maritime based special operation unit, more specifically, like, in other words, we operate in the water, like, you know, Mm -hmm. always one foot in that the heritage is from, you know, the UDTs of the World War II era, the people that were clearing the beaches in advance of, you know, the ground invasion of Normandy. Um, You know, so that is really the heritage of the community and and being comfortable in the water is a prerequisite uh, to everybody. But if you had to break down the amount of time you spend Swimming in the water, going through mm. Buds or going through Hell Week, it's you know, minuscule compared to the amount of time that you're running on land and carrying heavy things and mm. doing other variety of things that are more land based, uh, I would say. And so um, for me, I, I think that swimming um, helped you know, the water stuff was frankly not an issue, just like it wouldn't be an issue for yeah. any, I would say, college swimmer or certainly Olympic swimmer. Uh, in terms of breath holds and things like that. But the on-land stuff was was challenging uh, because yeah. you know how swimmers run. That People make fun of uh, of swimmers and their running ability in large part because <laughs> they're you know, floppy feet and all this stuff. Yeah. And so I definitely got my uh, my share of, of grief coming my direction in that regard. But what helped me the most, I would say, is having these um, these coaches that were very hard on me and were hard on me um not in a a bad way but because they wanted me to fulfill my potential right and i think that i took that same perspective with our seal instructors they're hard on everybody they make your life as miserable as possible but if you reframe the reason why and you understand why it's because they're the gatekeepers to Uh, teammates that are going to be serving in life and death situations. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a real noble reason for people to be hard on you. The same way I would say there's a noble reason for swim coaches to, you know, give you a prescription for extra yardage if you deserve it and you need it. Right. Or, you know, some like, you know, some harder repeats. Um, And so I would say anybody that comes from whether it be swimming, more specifically or more generally an athletic background that has had to endure, um, you know, coaches that don't just let you do whatever you want. Um, I think you're probably in a good position going into that into that crucible.
0: Which one of those three coaches set you up the best? Then, who who was the hardest on you out of those three? I don't. I don't think I can pick one. They're all just different in different <laughs> ways.
1: I, I remember. So, you know, whether it be Coach Rose, who I, I would say in my adolescence really was helpful and helped to harness that. Um, you know, we had an analogy in the SEAL teams that I think is. Uh, reminds me of coach Rose is that you, you really want to work with guys who you need to pull in on the reins versus letting them out uh, really hard to uh, have somebody achieve their full potential. If you want, if you're constantly trying to let out the reins, if you will. Mm. And I think that coach Rose, you know, uh, had a unique balance of doing both with me helping to temper me when I needed to be uh, mm. and helping to let me run when, when I, uh, when i had the opportunity to and i, I would say so uh, he was definitely um extremely important in my swimming career wouldn't i, I don't think be an olympic medalist without him mm. and then coach Sh- schubert you know similarly i mean huge you know uh, pedigree of bringing uh, multiple olympians to to the olympic team and specific to the distance events um and i and, I, and then subsequently when you know when he left usc and, and coach salo came in that was a big unknown for a lot of people and I, I think for for me and OS as well, like uh, Coach Salo was labeled as a sprint coach, right? That's yep. what everyone thought of him as. And I think up until me and OS, like I don't think he had like a, a distance guy that, you know, was, was a medalist. And I, I could be wrong, but I, that's what I recall being the case. Um, and then all of a sudden he has, you know, uh, OS that wins the mile, me that gets, you know, bronze in the 400, you know, OS wins mm-hmm. the open water gold and all this stuff. And so I think a lot of those, you know, unfair assumptions were, were dispelled, but I think it was a completely different type of training under coach Salo. And I'd be yeah. really curious to see what it's, what it's like now, how it's evolved even to this day. Uh, Cause I imagine folks are just so much more disciplined about, you know, nutrition and training and recovery and things of that nature. At least that's my you know presumption of, of how things are these days. But um, back then it was definitely a meat grinder.
0: It's funny that you should say that. Cause actually I'm going to, I'm going to go full screen here. Dave Salo actually just sent me a photo of his practice today. He's got, it's like buds training. He's got people in, uh, in yeah. jeans and, and t-shirts. He's doing some buds training out there. I love it.
1: And I think that's one of the great
0: things about Coach Salo is he,
1: um, as I mentioned, I think swimming is probably the most mentally draining sport that I know of right. because so often you are just alone with the black line and your thoughts, which cannot always be productive. Um, but Coach Salo had this knack for making things interesting, for making them creative, uh, for making you excited to show up to the pool because you never knew what you were going to get. And mm-hmm. um, expecting like competition and high-level performance and uh, out of every single repeat. And so it really was a very quality orientation towards what we were doing. Um, you, know, you better do something special or why are you even doing it kind of thing, yeah. regardless of whether or not you're diving off the blocks with full clothes and you know all that or, or not
0: yeah um I had, a, I had one last question about buds in terms of the swimming side of it you did say it was it was fairly small but what was the hardest swimming part of buds like when you when you were in it and you probably look around and smirking a little bit like i, I got you guys on this one at least you know so what was, what was the hardest part of buds that you probably felt the most comfortable in in the swimming zone. well
1: essentially going through buds um you would have essentially weekly timed two mile ocean swims so mm-hmm. that was you know pretty much the extent of it and then at the end of second phase they'd have i believe it was a four mile like timed ocean swim and you know that oh, so you're doing swimmer, backstroke
0: ben you're cruising yeah. really. i don't want to like yeah you know <laughs> act
1: like you know too egotistical but you know for you too like for, for anybody that's yeah. been like an elite college swimmer it's really not that complicated Okay. Uh, I would say the hardest part of, of BUDS for, for me as a, as a former swimmer, as it relates to aquatic things, was uh, pool comp, which is, happens in second phase. They essentially put you at the bottom of the pool. You have your scuba gear on and they simulate a variety of underwater emergencies and you have to go through emergency procedures in order to get through them. And so what that means is you better have a minutes long breath hold and be able to calm your heart rate maintain your composure and work through tangles in your equipment um, to get your 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 air supply or oxygen supply back to you uh, without passing out underwater. Um, So I I think water has the ability and the sea has the ability to, to humble you um faster than i think most other environments can because Mm -hmm. it literally is life and death underwater because you need your air supply Um, and so i look back on all the different swimming things and water evolutions that we had and i'd say pool comp even as a former olympic swimmer um it depends on the instructors you get and how hard they want to go on you um and they definitely made it hard on me and everybody else there i'm not not unique in that regard um a, a funny other story is Um, When we got to the end of second phase, the Waterman's, um, you know, trophy or or, or, uh, I I guess category for the open water swim. And everybody was sort of giving me some grief saying, hey, am I going to swim the fastest four mile open open water swim in in SEAL team history or in Bud's history and all this stuff? And um, I I frankly thought I would. But as things go and as the uh, sea gods would allow, we had like this massive sea state. We almost canceled the swim that day, but of course we don't because when things are hard, you just step up and make them even harder. Um, And yeah, it wasn't even close. I think half the class was blown completely off course and like didn't even like finish it. We finished it but um it was i'm not even on the list and so that's something that people like to give me grief of like former college swimmers that go by they'll they'll text me out every now and again it's like i thought you're like an american record holder you're not even on the list of this thing at all anywhere and i'm like well i could make excuses but nobody's gonna like pay attention to them so yeah Yeah. i'm not
0: yeah 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 in terms of the um the numbering of SEALs, you know, like you, you have have different numbers. T- t- talk to us about the numbering and how you get allocated to a certain number in the SEALs.
1: Yeah, so uh, essentially it's as simple as the West Coast is odd number SEAL teams and the oh. East Coast is even number SEAL teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so that goes back, back to the UDT teams and the SEAL teams. They started a West Coast SEAL team one and an East Coast SEAL team two and they sort of you know built it out thereafter so we have you know one three five and seven on the west coast and two four uh eight and ten on the east coast with seal team six big sort of the you know special group i guess you could say that that fits outside of that characterization
0: why is that what why why do they fit differently
1: uh they are sort of the um the seals of the seals uh if Mm. you will so They are the folks who go through an even greater level of selection that's hard to make it through so there's you know i I don't know the exact numbers but i'd suspect a couple thousand navy seals out there maybe a little more um and you know only sort of the best of the best are over at seal team six and that requires another layer layer of uh of training and selection um that from my understanding i never went through it um but i have friends that did and who are over there um requires just more tactics and obviously there's conditioning and and new stressful things and and all that that go through it so i would say you can generally think of that organization as like the best seals in the seal teams by and large um i think is a a good characterization
0: so what number was was your team numbered
1: i was on the west coast my entire career so i was at seal team five primarily
0: okay nice nice and then how much of your time in the military uh, are you allowed to talk about or even want to talk about? Because I know, like, there's there's so many things these days. You see shows, you see people writing books, yeah. you see people doing podcasts, things like that. But I know that within the military itself, it's like, you, you know, you guys like to keep that um, between you guys, you know, obviously.
1: I- Absolutely. And I think that there is a uh, a negative perception of people that generally write books about their experience or want Mm. to uh, use, uh, I think, the SEAL uh, experience to um, further their personal brand. And Mm. uh, I think people um, in the SEAL teams uh, really, you know, personify the quiet professionalism that you don't want to talk about your work. And that's, really part of the SEAL ethos is that quiet professionalism and, you know, excellence and, and to your craft. And, you know, some of the you know, missions that people go on demand that by nature of the, 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 the national security side of the house. Um, I think I've gone through an evolution of this. I think while on the SEAL teams, uh, I was very awkward about it. I, I was so awkward about it that when I'd go to an event with my wife and, you know, even some family, I'd, you know, go through these layers of the onion that people would go through. Like, what What do you do for work? Oh, I'm in the military. What do you do for in the military? Oh, I'm in the Navy. What do you do in the Navy? Oh, you know, I'm in the SEAL teams. And like, it's sort of like, it takes so long to get to the crux of like what you actually do. And it's not because people are like mean or whatever, but like you, and it just got so awkward. So at one point my wife's like, it's super awkward if you act like that. Why, why don't you just like tell them what you do? Like, you no know, hiding it. Like you're not mm. trying to like brag about it. It's just, it's the reality. And so I think for my own career, I've gone through that evolution as well. Uh, whereas I think while in the military, people are encouraged not to talk about it. And I think that's by and large the right thing. I think outside of the military, it's probably by and large for people to just sort of like beat their chest about how special they are, because at the end of the day, I, I don't think I am. And I think that the people that go out there and you know, brag about it, I, I don't think they are. There's there's tremendously brave and selfish, uh, selfless people that we've worked with that have paid the ultimate price for their buddies and, you know, for their country. And I think that we should really admire that with a deep degree of humility. Um, but that said, like, it's part of what I've done. Like, I can't just put like a, you know, a big gap in my resume for a lack of a better term. And I think you know, we're all, um, you know, a creature of your formative experiences. I wouldn't be you know where i am now if i didn't have the opportunity to swim for coach rose for coach schubert for you know coach salo uh, i wouldn't have the opportunity to you know be doing what i am now and use all those lessons and that mentality if i wasn't trained by some of our nation, nation's bravest warriors in the seal teams of which you know they're they're all better than me i i mean i don't think that i hold a stick to many of my peers and my my comrades there they're just fantastic people and Far braver than I'll ever be, but I do think that you know failing to acknowledge that it, that it happened is sort of not realistic either. Um, and so I, I think I use those experiences in swimming and in the military to form how I think about my new career and the types of people we want to work with and partner with as we you know move forward in our in our existing business model. Um, so it's it's something I'm very proud of, but I tend to talk more about. You know in a social situation, I'm more happy talking about my Olympic experience and trying to beat Grant Hackett or whatever it is than I do about my seal experience
0: well, I'm sure your your teammates obviously relied on you too and there was the reason that you made it through and and did that so many years you were obviously good at what you did too so I think you're a little light on yourself in terms of the way that they depended on you just as much as you depended on them for sure and. And it kind of it brings up the the next point of like when I look at you, and I don't mean this as an insult at all. I mean you're a very good looking man. You're very well put together. You got you really give me nice. The insults. That's fine. <laughs> you got you got beautiful hair, nice eyes. Yeah. Like, oh I'm man, just, <laughs> just a good looking guy. And but like if I was if if I was sitting next to you at a bar, I wouldn't think you're a train killer. You know, like but that I, I watch a lot of UFC too, and I'm thinking to myself like now I know why I don't pick fights with anybody traffic lights and in lines yeah. at Starbucks, anybody. Like if I'm looking at you, I'm like, Oh, I could, get, I could take that guy. No problem. And then, and yeah. then you turn around and you're a trained seal. It's like, yeah. The I'm problem there.
1: is you don't know what I'm carrying in my belt, you know? So uh, <laughs> there, there's a way to, to, le- to even most uh, confrontations, unfortunately. And so, yeah, you gotta be careful about those things. And I totally agree. I think it's the people with the experience where they've been in dangerous situations. And I, I hear this the most from people that I know who are, you know uh you know mma fighters et cetera, and they're mm-hmm. the, the last people ever looking for you know a fight yeah. out there they're the most disciplined about that run right. avoiding it and like checking their ego and saying you know am i really gonna do this or am i going to just you know let it go what, what's going to get the best of me and controlling your emotions and ego especially in those situations is is extremely important tired of settling for less than the best with your team's dryland program swim strong dryland is the answer you've been looking for With world-class dryland programming for every age group, customized to fit your team's needs, nutritional coaching and education centered on the latest evidence-based research, leadership training and character development to promote an athlete-driven culture, sports psychology education and mental skills training, coaches' corners to promote collaboration, data-driven performance analysis, and an unrivaled family of athletes, coaches, and teams, fast swimming starts here. Hey guys, I've been trialing some
0: revolutionary new swim tech. And now you can get your hands on it too. This is EO Swim Better, a swimming evolution in the palm of your hands. Improve your technique with EO Swim Better. Analyze your stroke technique with EO's Swim Better handset. Go to eolab.com, use code BRET at checkout and save 10%. Right. Now, you know, you go, were you in the in the SEALs for what, six, seven years, something like yeah. That's right. Yep. Half a dozen years. So how do you know when, when time's up for that? You know, you go through this swimming career where you, where you kind of feel it. What about on the military side?
1: I think it's a similar sensation where I sort of felt it. um, But for different reasons, you know, I think we went through the reasons why, you know, I felt like moving on from my swimming career and doing something in the military was the right call. Um, I don't think, I think when I got in, I had every anticipation of making a career out of it, making it twenty years and doing a longer term thing like that. But you know life throws changes your way. And the situation changes frequently. And I think that um, I, I think that it's important to be prepared to have open eyes and decide what's around the next corner and where the priorities are. And so for me, um, you know I, I uh, got engaged to uh, you know my college sweetheart, essentially. Um, you know, before my first deployment, married thereafter, and ultimately, I saw you know firsthand through a lot of my you know, friends who had been in for a long time um, the the challenges in terms of managing a strong family life with a strong professional life. Mm. And as a career in the military, probably not specific to the SEAL teams, but that's that's what I know. Um, you're gone a lot. You do an average of a deployment every two years. And those deployments are six to eight months in length. Mm. And those, you know, in those intermittent eighteen months, you're training on. You're gone a lot. And um, I, I think at the time I had zero appreciation because I was <clears throat> either single or a newlywet, didn't have right. kids. Mm. Um, of the guys that were gone, you know, who've been gone half a dozen plus deployments, and their kids have like grown up. And you know, by the nature of the job and the sacrifice that they paid for the country. They, you know, it takes a toll on the home front. Um, I, I like to think, and I think it's, you know, common knowledge that the real warriors in the SEAL teams are the wives. Those mm-hmm. are the warriors for sure who make sure that, you know, everything is, you know, stable on the home front and can, you know, manage raising kids. And a lot of times when, you know, the, the dad is away in, in very dangerous situations, um, that, that takes a toll. And so I I think for me, at that juncture, um, it led to another sort of decision point. Like, should I, you know, similar to how I made that decision, should I continue and try and go for another Olympic Games? Should I continue and do another rotation or two in the SEAL teams? Or should I, you know, move on to something different? And I think that the catalyzing thing for me was seeing guys that I admire and that were my, you know, mentors who had done 20 and getting out, they, they, In the military you will do a career change um if you got in the military in your early 20s and you do 20 years you are changing careers again in your 40s like like it or not like that's just sort of what happens like you retire after 20 years basically and there's some exceptions but that's practically the case Mm. and so all those things combined me saying like all right well at some point i'm going to have to make a career change I'm still relatively young in my career. Mm. Uh, we're in the process of starting a family. Um, maybe it's better for me to do now. Um, and that was really what led me to consider doing something different again.
0: Yeah. So, what was that then? So, like, you, you're you at this crossroads again of like thinking, all right, what's my next path? And then you end up at Stanford. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. You went to, you decided to go to Stanford and get another degree. That's right. Man, that was a hard trade-off. Being a USC
1: guy going up to Stanford, I felt like <laughs> a sellout. Um, but no, in all seriousness, um, you know they, they've got a, an amazing program up there. Yeah. Um, really, you know, obviously in the heart of Silicon Valley, yeah. um, you know, really intertwined with the entrepreneurship and startup ecosystem. And I had some friends of mine from undergrad who had been who had navigated that um, to some degree of success previously, and were starting a new thing. And I like to tell them to this day that they're to blame for me go, getting into the startup and venture capital ecosystem because you know they helped to mentor me through it and introduce me to people. And I, I became infatuated by, um, by entrepreneurship. I saw so many things in the founders that are starting companies that I saw in elite athletes and in elite special operators, people that had a vision that were willing to grind and in many cases sacrifice a lot to accomplish that vision people that were creative, that were hardworking, and were in many cases trying to build something for the greater good and to do something for their teammates, aka employees, for their investors, for their customers, and for society as a whole, if it's a really important technology business. And I was infatuated by that. And I also felt like it was quite interesting to see that you know, in in military, in the military world, the SEAL teams are inherently one of the least bureaucratic organizations out there. Um, still, there is no such thing as, you know, a 25-year-old admiral. It just doesn't exist. I don't right. think it, you know, maybe it's never right. existed. Maybe it did during the Revolutionary War, but certainly mm-hmm. not since. Um, and what I saw in Silicon Valley was, um, although rare, the potential for young you know kids uh young young ladies and gentlemen to figure out a way to transform a whole industry mm. um and I thought that was just fascinating and unbelievable and I couldn't see something else like that anywhere else in our economy um and so I was dr- gravitated towards that because I think it's similar similarly aspirational uh to wanting to make an olympic team or wanting to be you know in the seal teams yeah. Um, there is sort of like a gravitas to that, and so that's really the reason why I went hook, line, and sinker and all in into that sector. And um, fortunately, I think it's you know you know worked out decently thus far, but still have a lot a long ways to go.
0: Yeah. So talk to me about Harpoon Ventures, a VC firm that you you founded. Uh, I imagine with with some other people, and and it's doing yeah. remarkable these days, man. I appreciate that. We think we're
1: doing all right. Um, but uh, we are, just so the listeners know, we are a venture capital firm. Uh, mm-hmm. Our mandate is to have some set of people, pensions, endowments, family offices, you know, et cetera, um, invest in our fund.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: out of that fund, we then take that pool of capital and we invest it into a series of underlying portfolio companies that are startup technology businesses. Um, Our observation and what I think that we uniquely have some domain expertise in is helping companies that we invest in understand how to do business with Uncle Sam. And that was essentially born out of this thesis that this modern era of technology is going to have further reaching geopolitical and national security implications than any other era of technology, certainly in my lifetime. Um, more akin to the space race in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really occurring now as we start to see the emergence of AI proliferating into literally everything. It's mm-hmm. probably in this podcast software, yep. um, you know, this you know, uh, new technology in space, in biotech and cybersecurity um, and enterprise infrastructure and the cloud. All of these things are extremely important technology areas that I think uniquely the United States um, has the opportunity to continue to build upon, uh, to continue to make us a more prosperous you know, uh, uh, society. Um, and so um, I think that that's something that's really exciting to me. Um, and that's what our fund does. We invest our capital and look for those startups and look for those founders that are deep domain expertise in those types of technology areas. Sometimes they're a first-time founder. That's just this... Um, you know, proto, just very like protege, amazing, you know, young uh, lady or gentleman that's doing something really special in these areas. Maybe they've never started a business before, but they have a very special technology that's 10x better in the form of cheaper, faster, etc. cetera, um, for their set of technology customers. Um, alternatively, it could be repeat entrepreneurs, people that have started and sold a business previously and are starting something new in an area that they really know a lot about. Um, that's yeah. our mandate as a venture capital fund. And yeah. I think it scratches my creative itch every single day because um, I would say uh, probably 99 times out of 100, I am the least informed person in a conversation that I'm in. And <laughs> I, I I love, uh, I guess, swimming in the deep end and trying to figure yeah. out how to get up to speed with these folks and trying to suss out who is really on to something unique um, and who you know provides us the best opportunity for us to partner.
0: I was going to say you must you, you like you like risk, don't you? You you're really into risk, and and I guess <laughs> I, I guess you're into mitigating it, but you you like risk as well. I I think it's an interesting
1: topic, and I think it's it's something that I think a lot about is the concept of risk, and I think there's different types of risk. Right. In some ways, the risky thing to do, the most risky thing to do is nothing right. um, because you can't fully understand the opportunity cost. So, in other words, maybe the safe thing to do in the swimming world is to stay with your existing program, perhaps. Um, but if you get the sense that, you know, you'd like to make a change or you see a new program out there that you're drawn to and, you um, you know, maybe it's worth the risk. And I, I think in my case, you know, I, I left my, my, uh, my house, my hometown when I was 16 years old to go swim for coach Bill Rose down in Mission Viejo. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was a risk, right? Like yeah. things could have not worked out. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I generally think that, um, people tend to, uh, take less action and I would prefer to, uh, you know, risk by taking action um that doesn't mean it's always going to pay out and i think one of the important things to understand is that nobody in life is going to remember your failures they're only going to remember your successes and so but interestingly i think cognitively and psych- psychologically speaking like the failures hurt the ego more than the successes feel good um but i think if you just zoom out a little bit and think about the risks that you take on a personal level um you just need one or two things to really work really really well in your career uh, and in your life, and those things, if they're of the of a significant enough magnitude, they make up for all the failures you've had along the way. And mm-hmm. I've certainly had you know way more failures than I've had successes. Uh, fortunately, I think some of the successes have just outweighed you know the, the failures.
0: How do you decide who you ultimately invest in uh, and and how, how how big is the portfolio? I mean, how many people are you guys actually investing in right now?
1: Yeah, we generally invest in about 20 to 30 companies in a given fund. Okay. Uh, so for context right now, we, we just raised about $125 million in our most recent fund. And we divide that up into about, let's call it 25 companies. Um, and so that's, you know, a pretty, I would say... Uh, diversified, you know, set of companies for us to hold on to. Mm. But venture capital is an odd asset class. That's not normal for normal asset classes. The presumption is that half of these companies or so will go to zero. We will lose all of of our money on a third to half of the companies that we invest in. Yeah. Um, The three to five that really work out need to work out very, very, very large. Um, And that's sort of the challenge. And so when we think about risk appetite, we want to back founders who in the off chance that they're successful, they get so large that it changes how an industry works. Um, That is not going to happen most of the time. Mm -hmm. And most of the companies that we invest in are going to fail for any variety of reasons, Uh, lack of capitalization, lack of customers, product breaks team breaks up any variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, but we need a few that will really take off and and be significant and important companies for the foreseeable future of, of our economy. Um, and so we are really looking for those companies that have transformative, uh, potential impacts, uh, that have founding teams that are deeply technical and know how to build something that's very challenging to make uh we're looking for a market opportunity that is not saturated meaning there's not dozens and dozens of competitors there because it's harder to sell into a saturated market unless your product is literally 10x faster or cheaper Um, and those are really the things that we look for and i think um, timeliness is really important what's really interesting about the market is there's plenty like uh, all the bad ideas from the dot-com boom had become sort of good ideas of the modern era. It's just that yeah. the infrastructure wasn't in place yet. You think of like pets.com or web band, grocery delivery. You know, Back then, there was a you know, huge flame out of capital in the 2000s that occurred. And now we all have on-demand delivery of like whatever we want, just to, to cherry pick an example. Um, and so it, it's interesting how like timeliness is really important. Um, there's... You know, I, I think it's Mark Andreessen that says there, there's no there's no bad ideas by the time, you know, a, an, an opportunity comes to his desk. It's probably a good idea. It's just mm. a question of like whether or not the time and the market, et cetera, uh, supports it right now.
0: Yeah, I love it, man. Um, well, the, the fact that you just even went out on your own recently and, and, and doing this as a as a founder and a partner, I mean, um that, that in itself must be difficult to get people to, to believe in and buy in for you, right? Like, how, how do you even set the stage to kind of launch something like that in on yourself when you don't have the experience as kind of a, a company founder in the past, you know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very challenging. Mm. Uh, it's something that people don't talk enough about, I would say, is that founder journey. I think it, the technology founders, they talk about it a lot. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, we... Um, It's trust based. People need to trust us with their capital that we will execute according to the thesis and strategy that we laid out. And we need to have proof points to illustrate that we are competent in doing so. And it's not just a total leap of faith. And so I think it's a combination of factors for us that gets people comfortable and not just comfortable, but excited about our value proposition. Part of it, I think, is certainly my background and my you know, rigor from distance swimming to in the SEAL teams, but also I think my education and um, my mentee relationship with some of the luminaries of Silicon Valley, where I've learned uh, from them you know, firsthand. Um, and, and beyond that, I think the uniqueness of our strategy um, of it being of it being different, we don't proclaim to be a normal generalist venture capital firm. We believe that there is a catalyst to this era of technology, um, given what's going on in the technology landscape and the geopolitical landscape, and inserting us in that intersection with with specialists in terms of, you know, who understands the Silicon Valley landscape as well as the government landscape and the geopolitical landscape and being at that nexus. There just historically has not been a lot of firms in early stage venture capital that have had that, you know, intersection uh, of, of experiences. And that's what we are bringing to bear for the portfolio companies that we invest in the founders we invest in. Mm. And ultimately, I think that's why um, limited partners, aka investor venture capital invest in us is is for that confluence of expertise that um, is is increasingly unique uh, in, in Silicon Valley.
0: Kind of reminds me of uh, as you were talking there and some of the things you were saying. it Kind of reminds me of Zero Dark Thirty. You know, with, uh, <laughs> they, they have to kind of they have to be like, listen, you got to trust us. We got a plan. It, it, we're going in. We're doing it. But, uh, you know,
1: it, it's funny. It's it's you know, it's 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 obviously very different, but the same right. principles apply. Um, yeah. You know, whereas the military would call it mission planning and intelligence gathering. Yes. And, you know, doing all of that, we would call it due diligence and right. Um, we we wouldn't call it intelligence gathering, but it's the same principles. Like we need to mm-hmm. triangulate on what truth is sure. and make a calculated decision based on how we are going to use our money to buy a piece of a company um, based on the information we gather. And the more information we can gather from disparate you know uh, nodes in the ecosystem, customers, other investors, uh, industry experts, academia, open source research, etc., the more comfortable we can get. With understanding if Bin Laden's
0: going to be in the house. Mm. Fascinating, man! You're a fascinating person. I think. I think you again. Like I, I just imagine myself sitting in a bar and having a conversation with a stranger. I feel like you could talk to an athlete. You could talk to a military guy. You could talk to a business person. Like you, you kind of got this whole range of like different different types of conversations you could have with anybody. And then, and, oh uh, and well, thank around.
1: you. I, I appreciate that. I definitely try, but um, you know, lacking in a whole lot of areas as well. And uh, but, you know, really appreciate you saying that. It means a lot to. Me.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, it's fascinating. You're a fascinating person. And I know, and I do want to hang out with you more if we ever get the chance. You know, we're not. Let's do it. I'm
1: not to too talk. far away. Yeah, I'm in San Diego. Yeah. I know you're up in Irvine. Uh yeah. it's it's a shame that we we haven't gotten together more recently. So let's let's find yeah. an excuse.
0: Yeah, I'd love that. Um, very cool, man. In in terms of uh, watching military movies, is it is it like watching a swimming movie where you kind of cringe a little bit? Is there a little bit of that in there? The, the Hollywood stuff. I cringe more at the swimming
1: movies. I would say so; those are more cringeworthy. I would say, yeah, um, yeah. You know, There's been you know military movies and war movies going on since you know the beginning of yeah. film. I'm sure. Um, so I, I do really enjoy you know military movies and military history and, and all of that. And, um, I think it's fascinating to me. But uh, uh, I think the closer to home it gets, and you know I've been out for a while, so I'm not as fresh up on the you know. You know tactics and procedures that people are using these days but mm. when there is a, a normal tv lower production budget mm. uh mm. situation like mm, that that's not how it works you know at <laughs> all um yeah. but there's yeah. other ones where you know people like you know some of my former colleagues consult on those sets and it's like yeah. you know a, a incredibly accurate
0: mm. that could be another part your next part of your life man you go into that yeah. so <laughs> Um, cool, man. Listen, Larson, this has been fascinating, man. Thanks for catching up. I know you're super busy and doing a lot of stuff, but, um, yeah, let's stay connected. All right. Would love to. Thanks so much for having me today. It was good seeing you. And, and I hope to see us in person soon. Cheers, mate. Take care.
1: All right. See you, brother. Bye. Bye.